You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So, uh, this, this text today, we're in Acts chapter 19. If you want to open it, uh, we've been in Acts 19 for several weeks. This was an awesome chapter, and we're closing out the chapter today. But to g- jump into this chapter, i got to give you some background, all the way back to at least 800 B.C., Before 800 BC, uh, there's a meteor that came from the sky and landed in Asia Minor. And the the people thought this was a sign from the gods, that this was from the god of of Armides. And so this meteor landed near the mushy land of Ephesus. And so the people of Ephesus decided to build a temple, a temple to Armides, in regards to this, to this statue that they considered this rock, this, this thing that fell from Jupiter, as they would say, that came down and landed in their area. So they built this temple. And they built this temple, and it was, it was a small temple, but it was an important one. And in the center of it was this meteor, and this is where they would go to worship Hermes, the fertility goddess. Every statue that we have of this, of this goddess uh, has her with multiple eggs or, or signs of fertility uh, all covering her body. And she is the god of fertility. And so they would go, and they would worship her, and they would pray that their, their, their crops would grow. They would pray that their, their animals would flourish. They would pray that they would have kids and they would come to Armenis for a blessing of fertility. And so this temple was worked for about 200 years, but then uh, the temple was destroyed. The city was raided by the king of a nearby country, and it was raided and it was destroyed. Other accounts say that there was a great flooding and that destroyed it. Either way, the king, in the midst of this flooding, in the midst of the raid, uh, conquered this land, but it was a generous king, and so he funded them to rebuild the temple, but to build it bigger. And so they came up with this new temple of, of Armides, and there was something significant about the change. This was a cutting-edge area, and they built these columns. They had these giant columns that they had to bring in, and this is marshy land. So they would lay the columns down, and they rolled it in, and then erected them. And on these columns were drawings, were, gra- were, were engravings. I think is the next one. I don't know. There. So there's engravings. And so this was very rare. This is one of the first, this is the oldest example we have. This is in a British museum of this temple in, our, in Ephesus. And so this temple was reigned supreme in this area for quite a while until there was a great disaster. There's a, an Ephesian by the name of Herostatus, and he wanted to create a name for himself. And so he climbed up in the rafters and he burnt down the roof of this great temple. And this was such a, such a horrible thing that the people of Ephesus not only tortured him to his death, but they made a, a, a proclamation that you could not pr- even pronounce his name or there would be penalty of death if you were to say that man's name. And so they, they tortured him and then they decided to rebuild it. And this time to rebuild it even bigger. And so this great temple, I'll give you a couple of the dimensions of it. That first one that was destroyed with the fire was 300 by 150 feet. This new one would be 400, uh, 425 feet by 225 feet. To give you some grasp of that, the Parthenon, which is still standing today, is only 230 by 100. So almost twice as big as the Parthenon was this great temple. 
And in the temple, they had great statues to, to many different things, to the Amazon women, because the, the belief was that the Amazon women came and they stayed there in Ephesus when they were in hiding. And so they have statues to the Amazon women. I think we have a picture of one of them. Believe. Yep, there we go. And so uh, they, there was this, they had these statues that looked just like that. And this was in the temple. But this temple was so grand that it was believed that when that great fire happened, uh, Armenes had left the temple. And the fire happened because Armenes had left the temple and was present at the birth of Alexander the Great. And so because she was preoccupied with the birth of Alexander the Great, she wasn't paying attention to her temple, and the temple burned down. Well, as they were building this temple, Alexander the Great came through Ephesus in 333 B.C., and he was so in awe of this grand design. Uh, they, they displayed what they were going to do, and they were in the middle of the process that he said, I'll fully fund this if you'll put my name on it. And the people didn't want his name on it. They didn't want him to have anything to do with it. And so they said, well, it's not right for one God to have to build a home for another God. And he's like, ah, oh, good point. And so he took off, right? And so they continued to build this grand thing. It, estimates say it took anywhere from 60 to 120 years to build the final temple, which we have a, a drawing of it. This is what many people believe that it looked like. It was considered one, it is considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, right up along with the pyramids and the hanging gardens of Babylon. There is a historian of that time that said, I have seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, the statue of Olympian Zeus, the colossal of Rhodes, the mighty works of the high pyramids, and the tomb of Masolus. These are all the seven wonders. But when I saw the temple of Ephesus rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. This is how grand this temple is. People would make an, an annual pilgrimage to Ephesus to, to pay tribute to the god of Armenes, to hopefully have fertility among their, their livestock among, in, within their home. They would go here and they would travel. It was a great economic boom for the city. Imagine, right? The race, twice a year. Great economic boom for Bristol. As people flood the streets and come in, as people are eating at the restaurants, as people are staying at the hotels, as people are buying all the trinkets, and there were many trinkets sold outside the temple. People would come and they would buy a little something to be able to take back to their own hometown, their own home village, to say, I was there. I was there in the presence of the great Armenians. I saw the stone that fell from the sky. And so they had purchased these statues, these little statues made of ivory, these statues made of gold, and these statues made of silver. And so this is where our story picks up. As we dive into this idea, this, now we have to know fully what's going on in Ephesus at this time. That there's this great temple that this is the center of the town, the center of, of economy, the center of everything. And here we find Demetrius, one of the silversmiths that are making these little trinkets for people to go back with. So if you have your Bibles, dive in with me. Acts 19, verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Remember, this is the, the word that they have for Christianity. They didn't have the name Christianity yet. They just called it the way, and I love that. Based on Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had made silver shrines of Armenes, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them all together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. 
And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in particularly the whole providence of Asia. He says that gods, must be made, gods made of human hands are no gods at all. See that he grabs all the silversmiths, but he also grabs people in similar trades. Those that are in the business of the tourism. All the people that have restaurants, all the people that have hospitality, housings, hotels. All the people that have the other little trinkets that are purchased. All the people that have the sacrifice animals that people are sacrificing to our meetings. He's gathered them all together. And he's trying to rile them up. And he does it under the display of Paul is turning against Armenes. We can't have that. But truly what he's doing is he's gathering the people that are hit the most economically by Paul's work. And he's saying, you guys know, Paul's making an impact. We need to put an end to this. He continues, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Armenes will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the providence of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So he's hiding behind that he's worried about Armenians, but truly he's worried about his own economic and prosperity. We've seen before Paul and his companions, they were on trial and they even said, for turning, they are turning the world upside down. This huge city of Ephesus. Paul, his companions are making that big of an impact that the economy is changing. That they're making that big of an impact for Jesus Christ. That they are truly turning the world upside down. And, and I love how he continues. Demetrius doesn't just say here in Ephesus, but he's always saying in all of Asia, in the providence of Asia. Paul's, Paul's message, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is that powerful that it's turning the entire world upside down. Back to the silversmith union, right? When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Armenes of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. So here we go again. We've seen this story as we've worked through Acts time and time again, right? As we go to a new city, people hear about Jesus. Those that don't like it, they raise up a riot, and now they, they capture Paul. Well, this time, they capture Paul's companions. As I was reading this, and sometimes, I, I don't know, when I, I read this Bible, I, I like to put myself in the story, and, and I can't fully grasp putting myself in the feet of Paul. That guy is just, I don't know. He just has this magnitude. He has this, this personality that I think, I don't know if I would have that courage, but, but I could put my feet in the feet of Gaius, one of Paul's companions. Imagine if you've been traveling with Paul. Imagine you're one of his, one of his helpers. That when there's a large group, maybe you take people aside and you teach about Jesus. Maybe you're the one arranging housing for the group. Maybe you're running and getting food when Paul's hungry. Maybe you're just there to encourage and pray for Paul as he preaches. Either way, they can't find Paul, and so they grab you. You are now at the center of this mob. This mob of rioting people that are worried about where their next meal is going to come. This mob of people that are worried that, that their economic prosperity is being ruined by you. And they're angry. And they're looking for blood. And so they're rioting and they grab you and they grab your companion and they take you into the theater. Into this theater. We have a picture of the theater. The theater was to have held about 25,000 people. 
Now, it doesn't say how many were there, and I don't believe that the theater probably filled up. But there was enough people in this riot that there was no other building to hold them. There's enough people in this riot that the streets couldn't contain them. And so they look, where do we go? Let's go to the theater. There we can all be. There we can see what we have to do to, to this companions of Paul. How are we going to overturn this crazy new Christianity, this way that people have been preaching about? So the theater fills with thousands of people. And they're all yelling and writing. And you are at the center of this. They've bound you and they're yelling at you. Imagine that. Imagine what that would have been like. The fear those two guys would have had. And then you have Paul. Verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the providence, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Like I said, Paul's a, uh, Paul's a unique guy, right? There's a riot, and Paul's like, let's go. And I feel like Paul likes to fight, but I also think Paul saw that opportunity. There's thousands of people that need to know about Jesus Christ. Maybe this is why Jesus has me here, for this riot, to be able to tell these people about Jesus Christ, about the gospel. And so Paul wants to go, but everyone knows if he goes in there, it's just going to get worse. Paul's going to be dead, or he's going he's to make this riot even worse, as Paul does, because he continues to fight. And so even the officials persuade Paul not to go in. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I love that part. They're just there. Hey, it's a crowd. It's a party. Let's go get a hot dog and yell, all right? And so the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense for the people. Now, if you're paying close attention, why would the Jews send Alexander to make a defense? It seems strange, right? Alexander wouldn't be a friend of Paul's. The Jews aren't in line with the Christianity. Why are they making a defense? It's because they're trying to separate themselves from Paul and Christianity. Here's all the Gentiles are raging and they're crying out, Great is Armenes! And the Jews want to make sure that the Gentiles know, Hey, these Christians, they're not with us. We're not the same. We're not together. Because the Gentiles just see Christianity, see the way as a different sect of the Jewish faith. And so they see the two combined, that there's slight differences, but so they send Alexander to try to pave the way, be like, hey, we're not with him either. We're against, we're against Paul. Let's all rage and yell at him together, all right? And, but, verse 34 says, but when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Armenes of the Ephesians. So they won't even listen to him. So Alexander is pushed aside, and now there's just chanting, and you're in this town, and you hear this chant over and over and over. People's curiosity is perked. They put up the be back in two hours sign, <laughs> going to go riot. And they, and they head to the theater. So the crowd is growing. People are leaving their homes, leaving their businesses. They want to know what's going on, and they get in, and they hear this chant. It's just the same chant over and over, and maybe you ask someone, and, and they won't even tell you. They're just continuing this chant. And so you wonder, maybe someone is going against the great goddess Armenes, that we have to chant, great is she. And so you begin in the chant. And so this crowd is growing more and more and more. The chaos is ensuing. And finally, verse 35, after two hours of this chant, 
The city clerk comes and calms everyone down. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Armenes and of her image, which fell from heaven? Remember that meteor? There's a reference to it. That meteor that fell from heaven, that fell from Jupiter. Her image is there. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these, men's here, these men here, though they have, nothing, they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. This is important. Because, like I said, I don't know if you remember, uh, this book of Acts just continues to build on itself. And a, a chapter ago, we had this proclamation from Galileo, who said that Christianity was legal. He made that proclamation in Corinth, but that proclamation resided over this whole area of Asia. And so this reference is back to that proclamation that's already been made. Had he not made that earlier, had Paul not been put on trial in Corinth, and had that declaration not been made, Paul and his companions could be found guilty here. Paul and his companions, Gaius and you, would be tortured and murdered in the middle of this theater. But this proclamation has been made. And so if they do anything against Paul and his companions, they're going against the Roman government. And so then punishment will be held for them. And so you see these people get riled up, as I think oftentimes we all do. That we see something we don't like, and instead of addressing the topic, instead of working through it, we go and tell somebody else, right? And then we get them on board, and then we tell someone else, and we get them on board, and then eventually everyone at the workplace is upset at the boss together. Everyone at school is mad at that other student. And we get this little riot of people that can agree with us. But that doesn't work. As the, city, as the city council comes and says, hey, you don't have anything legal to even build this argument on. We got thousands of people in this theater. Everyone's chanting for two hours. And there's no reason for it. You have nothing to build this on. So the passage continues. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. And in, in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the entire assembly. With his wise proclamation, these thousands are silenced, and they begin to exit. And they go by these two guys that have been bound, and, and maybe someone comes and unties them. But they're there in the middle of the stage of that, of that anthem theater, and as people exit, they give them jeers. They give them mean looks. Maybe shove them a little bit, spin on the ground. But they walk out silently. Because they know that if there's a riot, the Roman government will come and, and persecute them. They know if there's a riot, they will be held liable. And so Demetrius and his fellow silversmith union, they all have to leave. This crowd that doesn't even know why they're upset, they take their hot dog and they go home. And everyone dissipates from the place. As we see this story, how God protected Paul's companions protected them years before at this proclamation in Corinth. 
God had already paved the way for protection from this riot in Ephesus. And I think about that in our lives. How many times has God already paved the way to protect us from something we don't even know is coming? That he's prepared the way for the works that we are to do. We see that message in the book of Ephesians. As we've been going through Acts, the Acts kind of intermingles with the many different books in the New Testament. And the book of Ephesians is one of those that we see. Just think, look at the book of Ephesians through the light of this story, of this story alone and the story last week that Elliot told us about the seven sons of Sceva that, that were trying to, to cast out a demon and the demon beat them up and sent them out of the home naked. And that people were in awe of the name of Jesus, that it was more powerful than a demon that could beat up seven guys. Look at this book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 talk about the relationship with a living God. Paul is writing this church in Ephesus and about a relationship with a living God in a city that's been worshiping this meteorite that fell years and years ago. Relationship with a living God versus a culture that's making little statues to remember this goddess that can't do anything. We have this living God versus the dead God, the dead ways you used to obey, you used to follow. Paul talks from chapter 2, 11 through 3, 13 about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles within the church. That this is one of the first churches that we see the Jews and Gentiles working together. We saw in this riot, the second the Gentiles learn that Alexander's a Jew, they begin to chant louder. That the Jews sent Alexander before because they know they want to separate ourselves from the Gentiles and the Jews. These are two groups that don't want to mix. And the church in Ephesians, in, in Ephesus, is the first place that we see these two groups come together and have a common goal. In Ephesians, Paul talks about a new warfare, about a spiritual warfare. Throughout the book, he talks about the spiritual warfare that we see in the, seven, in the demon that beats up the seven sons of Sceva. That we see in the presence of this riding group in the middle of the theater. This spiritual warfare is beyond flesh and blood. And that we need to put on a full armor to protect ourselves from it. And then my favorite verse in Ephesians, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, stands out so much in light of this story. Ephesians chapter, chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Or in the New Living Translation, I love this. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. We've been seeing Demetrius and his little masterpiece, these little silver goddesses. That people would take and trinkets, they would go back to their towns. Something created by a silversmith. Demetrius who would come and go on this world. But we are God's masterpiece. You and me. That Paul is saying you are God's masterpiece. Not this little statue in the hands of Demetrius, but in the hands of God. In the hands of the living God. In the hands of the one that is fighting the spiritual warfare. In the hands of the one that sees equality among all of us. You are his masterpiece. What a beautiful message in the book of Ephesians in light of this story. We are his masterpiece. And so you have... This message to the church in Ephesus and this message to us that there is a spiritual war going out there and God is fighting for us. And he is a living God, alive and active. 
and he loves you, his masterpiece, and he has a plan for you to do great works. He had a plan for Paul to go into Ephesus and to, to preach the good news, even if it caused economic turmoil, even if it led to these silversmith riots. There is a great plan for Paul. There's a great plan for each one of us to be part of God's story. As I look at this, 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 as I look at this passage, we see that we are part of a grander story, of God's story, of a story that's gone from the beginning of time to the end of time. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found here in, in the book of Acts. And it says, uh, we found it, we came across it, chapter 5, and it was a wise person said, if you, if you continue to fight, you will, if it is of man, it will surely fail. But if it is of God, you will only find yourself fighting against God. This temple of Armides in Ephesus was of man. There's a story from 1100 A.D., quite a while later, right? That this group of soldiers, they come, and they come, they come to this marshy land, and the leader of the soldiers gets off his horse, and he sees a, a farmer, and he says, Sir, is this city, is this the city of Ephesus? And the man says, it once was called that. Now it's the name of Isiluk. Well, where is your bay? Where are the trading ships that I heard about? Where is this magnificent Greek temple that we have all heard about? And at this, the man looks confused. He says, temple? What temple, sir? We have no temple here. By 1100 AD, one of the seven wonders of the world was no longer even a memory. The, the city uh, of Ephesus was conquered, and the temple was destroyed. It was conquered in 268 AD by the Goths, and it was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt again. But in 391, the Roman emperor Theodos the Great made Christianity the state religion and closed the doors for good. In an ironic twist, in 401, Christian rioters destroyed it. I kind of thought that was funny. And so, um, and so this temple was broken down. The city of Ephesus became less, less used. The riverways began to fill with dirt, and ships couldn't even make it to it. And today, there's one lone column in the, about three miles off of the sea, representing the great temple of Armides. If it is of man, it will surely fail. The struggles we face today, they are real. The relationships that are broken and need mending, trying to find, trying to make ends meet, trying to make it through this life. Maybe you feel like one of those seven sons of Sceva, that you've just been beaten down and left for naked. There's times I feel like that. That I'm trying to do my best, but I feel just beaten down. At those moments, I want to take, take this story to heart. If it is a man, it will surely fail. But there's another image. If it's of God, they will only find themselves fighting against God. As we go into this time of communion... I hope you reflect that God is on your side. That the great temple of Armides is no more, but that cross represents a God that is living. That cross represents a God that is alive and active in our hearts.
That cross represents a God that will help us in the midst of our struggles. At the times we feel like those seven sons, that we just feel beaten, that we feel beaten by life, that we feel like we've been left for dead, that we've been, that we're run out naked and ashamed. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in that cross. The power to overcome death, the power to overcome our sin, the power to bring us salvation. So let this communion serve as a reminder that there is power in the name of Jesus and that if the world will find itself only fighting against God, if we have God on our side. If this morning you need to talk to someone, if you need to pray, I want to encourage you to come see us in the prayer room or one of the leaders will be in the fireside room after service. We'd love to just pray with you. If you'd like to learn more about this God and this power that could be yours, come let us talk to you. If you just feel like you're one of the seven sons and I'm just in the midst of a week of being beaten and worn down, and I just need encouragement, let us just pray with you, cry with you, encourage you. And know that we're in this together. As I began when I talked about small groups, this is, life isn't meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done together in fellowship of our Christian brothers and sisters and in the fellowship of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. If you'll pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your love and care. God, we pray for this time of communion that it can glorify you. God, that this time of meditation that we can let go of those burdens, let go of the, the things that are beating us down and give it over to you. That even for this moment, let us be on the winning side. Let us know that you are alive. Let us know that there's a great spiritual battle and that you are the victor. God, let us know you are the living God, alive in this room, alive in each one of us. We lift this name in your name, the name of Jesus.